This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is a Tuesday, Tuesday, ah, February the 24th. Where did February go? Oh, right, we were raising money. I want to thank all those of you who took the time and made the effort to help us pay our bills. God bless you for that. Uh, Oh, money, 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 money. The great god Moloch has us all by the short hairs. Mm-hmm. Okay, February 24th, 2004, and Ralph Nader is ready for more. Oh, oh, oh. I didn't want to talk about it, except I got some phone calls and a note and asking you what I thought. Well, what the hell do I know? Of course I think he's nuts. But he's our nut. Is it our fault? What can I say? Here is a man who busted his butt, a consumer advocate, Nader's Raiders, he kept at it. He's like a dog with a bone, this guy. An environmental crusader worked like holy hell. If ever there was a public servant, it's Ralph Nader. This guy tried with every fiber of his being to protect the citizens from exploitation. He was a whistleblower. Oh, he blew the whistle on the crooks, the capitalists, the con men, all those who prey on the working class. Um, as so many progressives are saying, uh, we agree. Yes, we do, of course. Um, agree with the choices that Ralph has made, uh, except for this latest caper. Say it isn't so. <laughs> Ralph Nader's righteous ideas for economic democracy have always inspired me, but let's face it, folks, this demand for perfection often prevents us from reaching uh, for the good, you know. Sometimes uh, you don't get best, you just get a little better. Utopia is a lovely word. I used to use it in my calligraphy, utopia. If you look it up, if you're a good linguist, if you look it up, you'll see that it means literally nowhere. Utopia is nowhere. All ideology is relative, folks. Ideas are one thing, but the world as we as we know it, that's another. There's only one absolute in my lexicon, and that is human suffering. As far as I'm concerned, well, I guess I got it from Santayana. He says, morality is the desire to lessen suffering in the world. We do that wherever it is possible, usually by inches. Politics is the art of the possible. What can be done? How can it be done? Nader's contention that our two political parties are merely Coke and Pepsi or Tweedledum and Tweedledee, it may be true, ideologically speaking, and corporate control may be the order of our day. It may be that our government is bought and sold or... It just might be that not all white male ruling class elites are the same. 
There may be some things to distinguish one of these guys from the other guys. This year, a regime change in the White House seems to me to be the first order of business. The right wing has damn near closed down all three branches of our government, taking our own state, the state of California, taking that into their, um, what is it, uh, camp, their power base. Now, uh, the sight of George W. Bush on television this week, addressing that gathering of Republican governors. Oh, oh, I don't know why that gave me such a terrible, terrible uh, shudder. It gave me nightmares. Uh, Bush welcomed Arnie. With much delight, he said that, of course, the California governor is new to politics and so is unused to all the lights and cameras. Oh, 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 he went on to delight his audience with all the news. He told them, yes, that the fascist fun has just begun. Yes, what's that wonderful cartoon I used to have over my desk? The gentleman in the club saying, well, George, if we didn't belong on top, we wouldn't be on top. Now, the good news is that the Democratic Party is still alive and well in these United States. The Democrats uh, are doing a dynamic resurgence. I'm just giving it my best, my best hopes uh with the help of Howard Dean, you know, it's got a jump start going. It's a wake-up call. He did do that, and I'm grateful for that. He, that is uh, Howard Dean, told his followers not to be tempted by this nader bid. <laughs> I myself am thinking of sending Ralph Nader a hearing aid. God bless him, yes. Please, Ralph, listen to your friends. The man looks exhausted on the TV. He looks uh, hounded, haunted, tortured. Uh, poor guy. I, I think he's locked into some grim stance. Can't let go. He's trying to do what's right. And, of course, I will defend to the death his right to be a jerk. Um... He has a right to run, but is it right, Ralph, is it right to run? Where are his advisors? Uh, why doesn't somebody help him? Try to remember, Ralph, back nearly four years ago. I remember it like yesterday, just before the last presidential election. There was a journalist asked uh, Nader, he said to him, he said, stop reciting, you know, your utopian stump speech and, and stuff you say, but, and tell us, how would you really feel if you woke up the morning after the election in 2000, right, okay, uh, and saw George W. had won the White House? Uh, I remember at the time, Nader finally paused, took a breath, and said, oh, well, He's not Genghis Khan. <laughs> Surely this is the moment. <laughs> this is the moment to stop and think. It might just be possible to unify the progressives with all their various agendas. Never, never will we have harmony. We know that. That's not a possibility. 
But we've got to unify, surely, at least once every four years, surely the Democratic Party can enlarge the size of its tent, enlarge the size of the tent and accommodate all of us. You know, Buddhists, atheists, feminists, <laughs> the whole kitten caboodle of us. Greens, environmentalists, labor. Of course, it's uh, the case that we must work for proportional representation. Uh, and for instant runoffs, it's, uh, you know, pie in the sky. But uh, we know that that's the way to uh, change the power base. But... In the meantime, in between time, our system, as it now works, demands that we come together at least every presidential election. We know that it's a two-way split and that the margin is extremely narrow. Look what happened last time. You remember last time when they told us the people have spoken, all five of them? As so many political writers keep telling us, all these new books, trying to tell us that the Republican Party managed to get it together. That's what they did, beginning with Barry Goldwater. I date it from um, Ronald Reagan, 1980. Ever since then, I have felt pretty much, pretty much fenced in by the uh, conservative uh, establishment in this country. They took power, folks. Uh, I remember Bill Clinton, who, God knows, struggled like, like hell. Uh, just before he left office, a journalist asked him what he did uh, that was memorable or what he had achieved during his presidency. And he mentioned a few things, and then he drew back and sighed and said, actually, the only thing he'd really managed was to stop Newt Gingrich um, taking over the country. He, Described it as a, yeah, a potential coup. He stopped the the Gingrich gang. Uh, you know how that is. You you have to keep running just to stay in one place. Uh, with the right-wing agenda and with the right-wing well-funded think tanks, uh, these guys got out their, their pocket Machiavelli and they studied those chapters on how to divide and conquer and set one group against another group and... Uh, they set us up, folks. Um, I remember, I remember vividly when it began. Uh, I found myself arguing, fighting with people who were basically uh, my comrades. And we fought like crabs in a barrel. We're still doing it. We're so busy eating each other up. Um, you know, black and white, male and female, all the little conflicts, all the trivia. We don't seem to see that it's the barrel that's holding us down. We are trapped uh, inside their system. You know, uh, I think that we can put it together if we could just see the forest instead of the trees, you know. Put together greens and labor movement and the identity politics groups. Um, there was a wonderful, wonderful speech by George Lakoff, uh, the... Um, uh, cognitive linguist telling us all about the he mentioned five different modes of thought that the left uh, is prey to yes and how we have to put together these five modes and connect the dots uh, you know how that is um, the uh, ethnic groups feminists and so forth all 
tell me that uh, their particular cause should take priority over the others, civil libertarians. Uh, each of us has our own sacred tree, and these trees are part of a great forest. And, of course, the forest is burning, folks. We've got to get... We've got to get sensible. Uh, I got in the damnedest, silliest fight last week with a man who finds that my, uh, hmm, my joy, my ecstasy, my delight over the gay and lesbian weddings taking place in San Francisco, you know, that was just too frivolous for words. Uh, he said he didn't have any use for marriage anyway, and I agreed with him, of course, but I said, don't, don't you see? That this is, this is a positive life force thing. Uh, uh, he doesn't go for that. He will sit still if I discuss, uh, the grim stuff, bride burning in India. Now that's a serious feminist issue. He'll go for that. But I finally got his coat with my spin on the television series Sex and the City. Uh, after that he split. He simply would not sit still for such nonsense. Um, there are some things that a real man uh, will not give his attention to. Yes, uh, I, I have to agree with him. I do want to talk a little bit about Sex in the City and about another theatrical event. Uh, uh, Yellow Man, which is playing at the Berkeley Rep. Uh, now, those two theatrical events are my spin for today. Um, Sex in the City ended its six-year run last Sunday night, and it's going to rerun, of course, forever. For those of you who have HBO, um, the play, Yellow Man, is by a remarkable young playwright. Uh, her name is Dale Orlando Smith, a 42-year-old black woman. Uh, this play is still running at the Berkeley Rep through March the 7th. And I give her my, um, my blue ribbon, whatever it is for Black History Month. I hate that month thing. I think that we should be all year round. We should be artists, not just, uh, what is it? Next month is, um, March is Women's History Month. Um, I think that since women are at least half the world, we should get at least six months, but never mind. Measuring rods are uh, for right-wingers. Uh, in any case, uh, a lot of people know all about sex in the city, and very few people know about Dale Olander Smith. Uh, the two, the two, um, plays, Sex in the City and, um, Yellow Man, uh, deal with a lot of the same issues that struck me as kind of funny, um, uh, especially the issue of gender. Sex in the City only tackled colorism once or twice <laughs> in six years. When it did try, it came up sputtering out of some very shallow waters. Um, one of the characters gets into a, a fight with the sister of her black male lover. She demands equal time. It doesn't come out very well, but... Ninety episodes over six years, and most of it was, of course, about the adolescent embarrassments of... Um, sexuality, female sexuality, but at its best, it was like French farce. You still have time to see Yellow Man, and uh, what the writer has done in that play is to dig, dig, dig very deep 
into the psyches of her two characters, the man and the woman. Basically, we get two monologues, uh, a lot of subtle lighting. Uh, Deirdre N. Henry plays the woman like a character in a monumental Greek tragedy. I, I still rings um, in my ears. She was just unforgettable. Uh, I think I have to go and see her again. Uh, her costume was magical. It was just this black and brown garment. Uh, I was thinking how incredibly uh, arty it was compared with all the the fashions, the uh, the junk, the costumes in Sex in the City, in which they put everything but the kitchen sink on those women. <laughs> yes, compared to to that one. One garment that uh, Deirdre Henry wore in Yellow Man. Uh, it's just some kind of a uneven hem. I, I won't even try to describe it. It was the kind of design that uh, only theater people understand. Uh, the plays about everything: youth, age, love, despair, anguish, resignation, the almost impossible effort that it is to love someone to relate to someone. It's all there. The playwright has done what so many of us tried to do, all of the women writers that tried to break out of the boxes that the male playwrights put us in, um, put our own experience on stage. The raw meat, Entosaki Shange, was one of the first. She took all of her poems, monologues, and created for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. That was all the way back in the 1970s. Susie Griffith did voices. We're all trying to speak. Uh, oh, for the first time, some of us. Audiences were stunned with the honesty in, in some of that work. It's true that if one woman tells the truth, <laughs> the world does split open, at least for a moment. Um, Orlando Smith uh, began as an actor. She says she had trouble finding worthy roles for large black women, so she began writing her own. I think uh, Toni Morrison tells a story, yes, about her beginnings in the theater, the way she was led into the novel. Back in um, the 90s, Orlando Smith created three solo shows. Um, she says that she was striving to write, quote, like a guitar lick or a slash of paint. She admired Sam Shepard's buried child. She wanted her place to be like a rock concert. Uh, the difficulty, of course, is always the line between narrative and drama. Now, I'm still struggling with that one, and I'm going to skip right over it now and let the audience decide. Uh, I do not think that Yellow Man is quite a full-fleshed drama. The relationship between the two characters um, does not develop enough. We simply see what each one is doing. The appeal of something as frivolous as sex in the city, of course, is that it does ride, the whole show rides, on the ridiculously superficial relationship of the four women. But all they do, of course, is talk to each other, feel so familiar, uh, what I like about Yellow Man is the power of the playwright's thought, her passion. 
Uh, now, how we're supposed to digest the material, all that raw meat on the table, that is the question. Uh, she's talking about colorism most of the time and the ways it manifests within black culture. Uh, that's a subject so fraught with taboo, with self-hatred, class conflict and humiliation. Uh, it's only now in the 21st century that some writers are beginning to open that wound and reveal the pain. I remember back in the late 60s, I had students in Oakland that uh, I, I could not have dreamt of the pain they felt. Uh, colorism was their world. And uh, I remember one beautiful young student, a uh, large, dark uh, woman, saying to me, she said, what with the white girls and Vietnam and uh, the need to be thin and have uh, European features, uh, she wasn't going to get very far. And I pointed out to her the kind of scores she had and her general intelligence and all that sort of thing. And she looked at me uh, with very old eyes and I, I couldn't believe that she didn't know uh, her her power, her beauty, but uh, even today, most of us most of us suffer these self-conscious pangs, wondering always how we appear in the eyes of the other. Makes you want to simply disappear. <laughs> yes, I get into ageism one of these days. I, I kind of like ageism. You can get away with murder, you know. Uh, people don't notice you. You can do some wicked things. Uh, I Yes, I was thinking of Toni Morrison's first novel, The Bluest Eye. I was going to bring it in today and read part of it, but you can go check that one out for yourself. It's that beautiful book about the little girl, uh, the black child looking for blue eyes. This color line stuff, it's still barbed wire. It's been a century since W.E.B. Du Bois told us that uh, our problem is the problem of the color line. Whether or not you believe that race has any reality, I don't, uh, any biological reality at all, you still can't argue that color is just a metaphor. Uh, all over this globe... Color is an issue, it's almost as intense, almost as heavy as the issue of gender. Which gets me back, yes, to sex in the city. <laughs> in Yellow Man, we get to the core of the divisions between men and women in a mere two hours. Sex in the City takes six years and 90 hours to even approach the subject. It dances all around these terrifying truths about human sexuality. In a way, it's exquisitely civilized. It is practically French. In Sex in the City, fashion is as erotic as um, the actual effing or the sex. I kept thinking of restoration comedy back in the 17th century and the bed-hopping games played by the rich and the silly. It's all come back around again, folks, the yuppie peril. Uh, I was thinking about all the young women 
watching the women spend the women characters spend thousands of dollars on shoes and purses uh it is of course a fantasy um what worked for me anyway is the long-term overall effect of this kind of romp it is a breakthrough what they call pushing the envelope show We've got four single women who finally transcend their guilt about sexuality. For my generation, that's worth 90 hours of prime time. These women make the kind of mistakes that used to get you killed. I mean, literally, folks. They get over it, they survive it, they transcend it, transmute it, or they don't give a flying... <laughs> this is not to say that the show has changed the world, uh... None of the heavy stuff really intrudes in this comedy, you know, um, battering, abortion, all that tough stuff. Check out a show called Strong Medicine on Lifetime TV, produced by Whoopi Goldberg. That one even gets as far as female genital mutilation. Uh, at the very end, the last season of Sex in the City, they threw in a few, um, oh, let's call them, uh, soap opera elements. The most promiscuous, the oldest of the women, Samantha, gets breast cancer. She, of course, beats it and um, throws her wig in the air and all the other women throw their wigs in the air and it's all very upbeat. Uh, the quirky one, my favorite, the little redhead Miranda, finally learns to love her mentally incompetent mother-in-law. bit maudlin, that, but... Um, Gives the character a little depth. Several people I know were moved to tears. Of course, I think it's a little late for that. Uh, the show was basically about the right to make a fool of yourself. Uh, the right of women to act like the men they complain about. Uh, they're shameless in their lust, free to make <laughs> all the mistakes we can think of. Uh, and then they meet over breakfast and forgive each other. My favorite was Miranda. She she would have the kind of date who would tell her to loosen up so she'd get drunk and then come on strong, and then he would reject her because she acted like a slut, that sort of thing. The problems of male disillusion with the female, that was my favorite theme on the show, how easy it is to disillusion the male. It's still hard for those of us raised in an earlier age to believe that any man could bear the kind of exposure they had to submit to on this show, most men would be the first to admit that they're much too stuffy to uh, have their behavior exposed in a way uh, that, well, makes them look, let's say. Uh, uh, what was it Virginia Woolf used to say? Men wanted a mirror to reflect themselves ten times their size. In this show, when the mirror is held up to the men, they shrink significantly. Uh, and all this is not over yet, folks. There's a new HBO series. It's all about lesbians. It's called The L Word. <laughs> and there's some very funny stuff in it. The men in the show are good. Very, very, very good. I, I admire these actors. They got the, um, the guts to tackle this material. Uh, the reaction of meta-males, or even heterosexual males, to uh, lesbian behavior provides a lot of the humor. Oh, I 
just love pansexuality. It's a utopian dream, kind of like the one Ralph Nader has, of course. It's all a fantasy, folks. The masses of men and women all over this globe are still living the old life. And the only way their lives get a little bit better is if there's a little bit more tenderness and a little less toughness. Right here in San Francisco at City Hall, the world is giving us this, this, um, this wedding. Uh, I hope it means something. I hope that it cheers up at least the people who are doing it. I know that hope is a rope that we hang ourselves from, but I do bless these gay lesbians and flower children. They're the ones I waited for, and they made my day. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till Thursday morning at 8.20, go easy. And if you can't go easy, well, what the hell, don't go. Those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadows out of Asian American Theater Company celebrates its 30th year with a black tea gala. That's right, leave the tie at home and come in your own black t-shirt. AATC's 30th anniversary black tea gala will be celebrated Friday, February 27th at the historic Green Room in San Francisco. A VIP celebrity champagne reception with David Henry Huang, Danny Glover, Philip Congotanda, and Amy Hill will be followed by an award show, performances, and after party with them all. Proceeds benefit AATC's New Works Incubator. Please visit www.asianamericantheater.org for more information on AATC's 30th anniversary Black Tea Gala.